Hi, if we've not met before, my name is Sean. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And this morning we are continuing in our sermon series in the book of Luke. And as Liz said last week, we're going to slow the story down as we approach the Easter week. Uh, Last week we saw Jesus uh, coming up into Jerusalem on a donkey. And since that, so to speak, we've had Jesus clearing the temple courts and creating a huge disturbance and the ruling religious elite are furious about this. And so they question Jesus on what authority is he taking this action? And he doesn't answer directly, but he does so with a parable. And Hannah is going to read that parable to us now. It's from Luke chapter 29 through to 19. Over to you, Hannah. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them the story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant, but they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. How terrible that such a thing should happen, his listeners protested. Jesus looked at them and said, Then what does this scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who stumbles over the stone will be broken to pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. Thank you, Hannah. That was great. We need to remind ourselves, state the obvious, that this parable didn't actually happen, but it was illustrating a spiritual truth. On first reading, it feels like it's all about these wicked tenants, but as you look a little bit closer, you can see that the real hero of the story is the honourable vineyard owner. Uh, Let me explain. Judea was in a time of economic oppression. Don't forget that they were oppressed by the Romans and their fierce taxations. And so what that resulted in, it was that many wealthy land owners, they went outside the land, outside the country, but they would rent out their vineyards or their fields to local farmers. And that is the illustration that Jesus is using here. So from verse nine, he says, a man planted a vineyard and he leased it to tenant farmers and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the great harvest, he, grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. Now in those days, rent was seldom paid in money. It was either a percentage of the overall crop or an amount that was previously agreed. And that is what the owner is sending his servant to collect. Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, but the farmers attacked the servant. They beat him up and sent him back empty handed. So the owner sent another servant, 
But they insulted him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. A third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. Jesus is saying that each time a servant was sent, the level of violence and boldness of these wicked tenants increased. The first one was beaten and sent away. The second servant, when he arrived, well, he was beaten and shamed. We don't know how they shamed him, whether they removed his beard or sent him away naked. We don't know, but it's escalating now. He's uh, beaten and shamed. And by the time the third servant comes, they wound him. Uh, whether that's with a sword or a stick, we just don't know. But he's wounded and he's chased out of the vineyard. He's cast out. And so we can see that the wicked uh, tenants are getting more and more emboldened because they think they're getting away with this rebellion. So verse 13, what will I do? The owner asked himself. I know I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. So the honourable, patient landlord decides to send his beloved son. He's operating on a, a, a maybe, well, hopefully, well, surely they will respect and honour him. He makes this one last heartfelt plea to, to these tenants. Please, uh, would you uh, give me what is due mine? And he sends his son as the true ambassador. His beloved son is now sent. Jesus goes on in verse 14. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to each other, here comes the heir to this estate. Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. The tenants, they stand up and by killing the son, what they're saying is that we're here now and we don't care about you. We are not scared of you. We're going to do what we like. You can't stop us. Jesus goes on in verse 15. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do to them? Jesus asked. Well, I'll tell you. He will come and he's going to kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. For those that were standing around listening to this uh, parable, this story that Jesus is teaching, in answer to the questions the religious leaders asked him, they, they get the parable straight away. They know that the vineyard stands for the people of God. They've read Isaiah 5. They know that the vineyard is the nation of Israel. And that these tenant farmers, they are both the kings and the spiritual leaders, that God himself has entrusted the people of God to lead. And so the, the tenant farmers, uh, they, they are the spiritual leaders and the kings of Israel. And the sent servants, well, they are the prophets, uh, the prophets of God. And they've been disregarded and shamed and they've been killed by Israel's leaders. They all got that. They knew that. They knew that the vineyard was the place where God's a rule and reign was received. The vineyard was the place where God's kingdom flourished. They understood uh, where the story was going. That eventually the, the vineyard is going to be given to others who would honour the vineyard owner. In fact, Jesus then goes on to quote from Psalm 118. And he says that I am the cornerstone. And if you reject me, 
you're rejecting the cornerstone that builds the gateway into the presence of God. If you stumble against me, if you reject me, you will have no access to the presence of God. This is what Jesus is claiming. And the penny doesn't drop quickly just for the people listening, but also for the ruler's elite. They know that this parable is being spoken against them and they are furious but they're more afraid of public opinion. They're more afraid of the people. And the parable ends there. Now this parable can show us a huge amount of truth, which is what Jesus is trying to do. Now if you are observant, you'll have noticed this model of Doctor Who's TARDIS. In fact, this is Mark Shin's model. It started life as a pedal bin, but actually what Mark did, he's built a computer inside of this. Now this computer is built to be a backup device for his Apple products. Now if you've got Apple products, you know that their backup device is called a time machine. This is uh, Mark Shin, he's a proper geek. This is Mark Shin's uh, time machine for his Apple devices. I think it's genius. Well this is a model of uh, Doctor Who's TARDIS and as you go into a TARDIS in the whole Doctor Who world it just keeps opening up to an infinite number of rooms and corridors and storage areas there's even a swimming pool inside the TARDIS now why am I bringing a TARDIS into this story because this parable it's like a it's like a TARDIS I spoke to Andy McSee about it and it's this is one of his favorite parables he tells me he said because it's like a TARDIS it just keeps opening up and as I've been walking around inside this parable, I've experienced the same. It just seems to keep opening up more truths about life. Let me show you and tell you some of the things that I've discovered walking around inside this TARDIS parable. First thing, what it tells us about us, about our privilege and, and our sin and our responsibility in that. Well, it talks about our privilege uh, the tenants did not plant the vineyard. Uh, they didn't create it. Uh, the vineyard owner did, and it was good. And the vineyard owner uh, gave uh, the, the tenants the privilege of being stewards for him. And even more, the owner didn't stand over them, lording it with a whip, uh, looking for daily outcomes, checking up on them. But actually, he steps back, steps away from the situation and entrusts them and demonstrates dignity, giving it to them by saying, hey, listen, you go and tend this vineyard. Immense dignity that, that we have. But it also speaks of sin. The tenant's sin was that they refused to give the owner what was rightfully his. In fact, they laid claim to what was his. They wanted ownership of it without any accountability to him. Uh, they wanted the things of God, but not God himself. You see, sin, it's all about usurping and rebelling against the authority of God. God's rightful claim on our lives. God rightfully makes claims on our lives. He has created all things. He makes claims and our sin is that we, we don't want that. And with that sin comes responsibility. This parable shows us that a day of reckoning is coming. Sooner or later, all of us will be called 
to give an account for our lives. And we can't avoid that day. We can't cancel it. We can't weasel out of it. We can't pause it. That day is coming. But it doesn't just show us truth about ourselves, this parable. It also shows us truth about God, his love and his patience, but also his coming judgment. And how else, when you think about it, how else can you explain the owner sending so many servants? Uh, it, It must be the love of God. He keeps calling out and pleading to them. And eventually he sends his son in the hope that we will finally come to our senses. So we see God's patience and his, his love and his patience. Did you notice that the owner, he did not strike at the first sign of rebellion. You know, he didn't quickly nip it in the bud after the first servant. He sent servant after servant after servant. He's incredibly patient, chance after chance to do the right thing. But we can also see God's judgment in here. The tenants, they honestly thought they were going to get away with it. In fact, they were emboldened because they were getting away with it. But this parable shows us that God has not abdicated. He is still in power and he is holy and he is just and he is keenly engaged in his vineyard. And however much people seem to be getting away with sin, a day of reckoning is coming. But this parable doesn't just show us about us and about about God. It also reveals much truth about Jesus. We can see his resolve and his confidence and his identity. We see his resolve in that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, he wasn't hoping that somehow the cross, the cross was going to be cancelled. He knew what was going to happen. I mean, after all, he told this story. He knew what happened to the son in the story. He knew what was going to happen to him, but he didn't shrink back. He, he set out resolutely for Jerusalem and went through the cross event. We see his confidence. He never doubted in God's ultimate triumph. One writer put it like this, beyond the power of wicked men stood the undefeatable majesty of God. Beyond the power of wicked men stood the undefeatable majesty of God. I love that. Wickedness may seem to prevail. The the serpent will strike the heel of Eve's offspring. But Jesus will crush the serpent's head and set us all free. And Jesus' confidence of the final outcome and his own vindication. And we also see his identity. Jesus deliberately removes himself from the succession of the prophets. You know, he's depicted by the, the servant sends his, uh, uh, the owner sends his servants time after time. He removes himself from that succession. They were servants. He is the son. In fact, he is the son of of God. He is the Son. And Jesus knows that and he wants everyone to be clear. He's not a servant. He's not a prophet. He is the Son of God. Let's pause for a moment. We're towards the end of February 
Christmas is well and truly behind us. Christmas with all the wonder as we think about the incarnation of God, about how God sent his son uh, to be amongst us, Jesus fully God, fully man. That's the message of Christmas, the incarnation. Christmas when we think about the vineyard owner who sent his beloved son alone into the vineyard where previously his servants have been beaten, insulted, injured, cast out. Yeah, that is the wonder of the incarnation that God, the vineyard owner, sends his son into the vineyard in order to express the love of God. And we have Christmas behind us and Easter ahead of us, where God's love and justice work together. And we see that outworked in the life and then the death of Jesus on the cross. And as he dies on the cross, as he does this great work of salvation, as he earns our salvation on the cross, we call that the atonement being worked out on Easter. God, the vineyard offer, uh, God, the vineyard owner, he is offering this sublime love to us. And he sends his son in total vulnerability and he does that in order to win his people back. But the father's love in sending his son will result in the death of his son. And we, we see that in this parable so clearly, the message of Easter, which is ahead of us, which is why we're slowing down as we approach Easter to see the wonder and the glory of Easter. As I was doing my preparation for today, I read Paul John Isaac. He's a Namibian a theologian and scholar. And he wrote in his introduction to Luke, and it was a massive light bulb moment for me. I want to read you uh, his quote and then explain what I got out of it. What was my light bulb, mo light bulb moment? Uh, Isaac wrote this. Luke understood a point that has only recently been rediscovered in academic theology. Namely, truth is basically a story, not a concept. In the Old Testament and Gospels, God's interaction with people is not conveyed by concepts, but through stories. In reading these stories, our concern must be to see how it advances our faith and good works one little step. What Isaac is saying is that truth uh, in the Old Testament truth, in the Gospels, it's not conveyed by uh, an idea or a concept. Uh, it's, it's shown in stories. By that I mean uh, the, the idea that God is powerful, the concept God is all-powerful. We understand that when we see the stories in the Old Testament of God bringing his people out of slavery, the great miracles that he did to bring them out. Uh, we see the truth of the power of God at work when we look at Jesus in the miracles uh, that he performed. Those stories, we see the truth. Uh, it's not just concept. So we understand truth in story. That's what he's saying. And that was a massive light bulb moment for me as I'm reading this parable, as I'm understanding these truths about us and God and Jesus being shown to me in the form of story. So as we approach Easter, as we slow down in our telling of Luke's story, my prayer is that the truth that is contained in this TARDIS parable 
will continue to advance our faith and good works one little step at a time.